So creating an ecosystem whereby we empower people from the community to create products, source the components, launch them on Hackster, and if the signal says strong, people love what you do, we want more of it, we then tell them, now you can actually work with Avnet. Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor-in-chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. IoT will change the world. Everybody knows that. But who will build the machines, algorithms, and networks that will make this dream of a connected world come true? I'm here today with Adam Benzian, the co-founder and driving force behind Hackster.io, which bills itself as the world's largest and fastest growing open source hardware community. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Uh, Adam, can you explain to them what Hackster.io is really all about and how managers, businesses, and startups stand to benefit? Excellent. Good morning, Tim. Hackster is a large uh, community for developers and engineers. It has about 1.3 developers from about 150 countries around the world that come together to our site to share instructions, projects, source code, uh, and build materials of all sorts of IoT projects. And they can range from home automation to autonomous vehicles to IoT, industrial IoT and so forth. And in fact, they have shared over the years over 21,000 complete open source, ready to replicate projects that anyone can go on the site, learn from, copy, replicate, and, uh, and build forward. I have heard you described as an ecosystem for developers. What does that mean exactly? It really means as an ecosystem that it's not really something that Hackster does on its own. We have about 200 partners and they make the ecosystem uh, with the developers. These partners would be companies like Google, Microsoft, NXP, Xilinx, NVIDIA, etc., that come together to share their software, hardware, knowledge, white papers, often even workshops, webinars, and tools to help developers all over the world to build the things they need to build as simple or as complex as they might be. And that create an ecosystem of collaboration, an environment where people can actually interact and share information. As you already told us, you have 1.3 million members in more than 150 countries. That kind of makes you the UN for developers, doesn't it? And in fact, you recently conducted a contest with the United Nations, the COVID-19 Detect and Protect Challenge, to create open source technology that developing countries can leverage in the fight against this global pandemic. How's it going so far? Thank you. Yes, uh, we, it's going actually extremely well. So we're very proud to have the United Nations come to us, including UNICEF, by the way, in uh, telling us that they see that this pandemic is going to hit the developing world even harder because they lack all the resources, hospitals, and knowledge of how to create uh, solutions and therapeutics to uh, support the citizenry. So Hackster and our developer ecosystem will come up with rather simple, easy to use and easy to replicate technologies that can help uh, these communities de detect uh, COVID-19 spread and protect people from uh, a continuous spread that can be then transferred to them as a technology transfer. 
So far, over a thousand uh, developers have registered, and in the growing numbers every day, and about a hundred new developers join, and over a hundred submissions of all sorts of ideas have been submitted. And these ideas are not just an idea; they're complete projects, including materials, electronics, three uh, uh, D printing uh, parts, CAD files, and instructions of how to assemble and build these uh, components and these uh, solutions. And we are really pleased that this is happening because this is really is impacting uh, these countries in a bad, bad way and creates uh, all sorts of problems beyond the pandemic, which are also extreme poverty as uh, Lassen's jobs continues in these countries. So we're very proud to be working with the United Nations, UNICEF, as well as support from companies like Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Google, including Avnet, Arm, NVIDIA, NXP, and others that came together to support this contest. But you haven't found a vaccine for COVID-19 yet, have you? Have not. And in fact, I would say that we actually are shying away. We told people, please do not try to come up with a vaccine. This is not where we are expert in, and we do not want to offer a treatment because this is something to be left to the experts. So yeah, none of that. Or Mr. Trump. Um, yes. <laughs> this is an exciting project, obviously. Are there others that come to mind that you personally were very proud and excited about? Uh, in general, yes. We actually run a lot of contests on a monthly basis, and uh, some of them have been really interesting. So a contest could run, we, we do solutions and contests for company, very large companies from NXP to Ant Semiconductors to Kemet and a lot of big names in, in tech for like NVIDIA and NXP and Google and Microsoft. One, one of the that comes to mind that uh, two of them actually that I love the most are Amazon Alexa Echo, the Echo devices. When they first came out, they didn't have a lot of uh, what they call today skills. And some of the very first skills that were built for the Alexa ecosystem came from the Hackster community. So when Amazon first came up with a concept and they couldn't even ship these Echoes to people because they didn't have them, they had a virtual Echo. It was called Echo Simulator. Uh, they provide the simulator to our community. Our community clearly understood what they're trying to do and build some of the first skills that appeared in the Alexa store that became clearly, as we know, a, a major hit in the household item. Another super interesting uh, design challenge was done with GE. GE had a division that does uh, home smart lighting for the, ho for the house that so you could speak to, connects to Wi-Fi, etc. And they wanted to see what else can you do with these lights. And they had a design challenge to ask how developers, can you build us a consumer product, an end product that can actually, we can actually sell and, and make something special out of it. And uh, one of the designs uh, out of hundreds of so many designs was the winning design and G actually, they did pay that person, you know, a nice amount of money for their IP and, and thinking and a very complete design. And that product uh, has been launched, is on sale. <laughs> you can buy it in stores. It's called the GE Soul Light, uh, which actually ironically has Alexa integrated into it. It's a beautiful design. And we're really proud to see that, wow, a company like GE can come to Hackster, uh, uh, crowdsource ideas and a year later, we saw it uh, being sold, and they even mentioned us in the press release that this was first uh, uh, thought of on, on the Hackster community. So we definitely have a lot of uh, proud moments. Yeah, great. You bring developers together and help them create exciting new project ideas, but surely mistakes are also made. How do you help them avoid them? Mistakes are really part of the learning. I really believe that you, you don't learn unless you make a mistake. So they they're, they're free to make mistakes actually on hackster we have message boards where we help them answer questions 
We have webinars on a weekly basis where they get to ask questions and engage in Q&A with uh, developers from headquarters of large companies that build products. Uh, and guess what? The large companies make mistakes too, very often. We often will see the companies will launch products on Hackster and once they release it to the community, they'll find that there's some errors in their firmware on the instructions or documentation. And then that feedback gets back into the big companies and they fix either their market fit of the product itself or just some of their technology. So mistakes are really uh, a crucial part of the process of learning and particularly in technology. And the faster that you help people relearn and get the feedback loop shorter, the better the products get. So so it's all through learning and peer peer uh, correction. The peers correct each other when mistake is seen and, and detected. Your mantra is share, learn, and earn. Uh, is the last one something that startups are not quite so good at? I mean, they're techies for God's sake, and they're in it to have fun uh, creating new stuff. But of course, first they have to make money, don't they? You're, you're absolutely right, and I think that a lot of startups get lost in the sort of gamification of starting a company that has these clear processes of a great idea, an exciting team, and the famous raise around in Silicon Valley or elsewhere around the world, and and then you have a company. But uh, there's a there's a big fallacy behind this because companies must turn uh, become either break even or turn some sort of a profit because you cannot sustain yourself without it. So I've learned that the sooner you figure out your business model. And even if not all of us are going to become a Google or a Facebook, um, but you have to figure out your business model fast because eventually you cannot keep going through rounds and rounds and rounds of fundraising because it's an illusion of creating something. And startups are important, you know, they're important for job creation, they're important for so, so much that people need to take it a little bit more seriously and think through uh, the profitability early on. The business model has to be baked early, not later. On the other hand, you once said tech is a form of art. Could you explain what you meant by that? <laughs> sure. It, it really is about, this is the process of creation. Tech, and it depends also what kind of tech, there's a lot of uh, fluidity in it that while engineering is, is probably something that has to be extremely precise, the end, the end outcome, but the ideation and how do you get to what you want to build, it's really truly more of an artistic process. It's, it's imaginary. You have to imagine and understand how do things look like? How do they interact with you? How do they feel to the human touch? Uh, it, it, there's a lot of things that come to it that are very abstract and a lot closer to the artistic world than the engineering world. The execution is different. The execution is all about precision and, and excellent engineering. So I feel like it's really Steve Jobs was famous to say this is um, the intersection between uh, uh, the humanities and science that you have to blend both to really get great products. And we see it every day. We see this with, you know, beautiful cars and beautiful devices and, and, and things that you speak to that answer and interact with you in, in a way that is very humanistic. Um, and that's exactly what that is. It's, it's you have to have the, the artistry of it baked in before you actually design it and build it as an engineer. Tell me, how will things like Microsoft Azure help make the Internet of Things and more specifically the industrial Internet of Things become a reality? Microsoft clearly has a special place in our hearts. I also worked at Microsoft for close to eight years, uh, both in Asia Pacific and in Redmond. 
And, you know, it's a, it's a company that has transformed itself in a way that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe how fast and how mighty they become again. And what their, their investment around IoT and, and particularly in Azure are pretty significant, including um, the recent introduction of a product called the Azure Sphere. It's a, it's a hardware product. It's an electronic component that you can embed in any product that you create that creates a security layer on top of your IoT product, as you can te- can't tell and, and know that IoT, while it's important and it is everywhere and touches every element of our life, it's also susceptible to security threats and attacks and can be very meaningful uh, if something terrible happens to you know uh, a wearable that sa- uh, safeguards somebody's life or a power plant that you know powers a city. So thinking through security is a big deal in Azure Sphere is a big part of it. So recently, uh, about six months ago, Microsoft tapped uh, Haxter and Avnet to design, manufacture, and distribute 20,000 of the first ever Azure Spheres for Microsoft. And Haxter got these units to distribute to our community as the first people to ever, ever get a hold of these devices and build projects and reference designs to show what can you do with Azure Sphere and why is it important to secure every product that uh, you call IoT uh, and, and the ways you can secure it with. And I think it has about seven levels and layers of security that you can turn on and off depends on how much do you want to harden your product. So so Microsoft is a major player uh, in the cloud, in IoT, and now also in hardware that can be embedded on hard, hardware products that interacts uh, on the back end with the Azure Sphere Cloud, with the Azure Cloud. Okay. Since 2016, Hackster has been part of Avnet, a Fortune 500 company and one of the world's largest distributors of electronic components, and incidentally, the sponsor of this podcast. Can you describe your relationship with Avnet and tell us how it helps you reach your goals? Absolutely. And I think it's a really good success story. And there's a lot of learning uh, for those who listen. And also, if you are a startup that is joining a large company or a company is acquiring startups, uh, what Avnet has done here has worked tremendously well. And I'll explain when they first engaged with us and wanted to acquire us, we are, we are shy of a hundred thousand members on the community. We're only six people. And while we made some revenue uh, and managed even to be a break-even company, we are tiny and they really liked us and they liked the team, but we explained to them that if you buy us and integrate us into this really large company that's been around for about a hundred years, we're probably going to have a slow death <laughs> within. So it's best if you keep us as a as a brand within the company, but let us run on our own, on our own PL and, and and let us grow really fast. And they absolutely agreed and made it in fact a condition of acquisition. And they empowered us with some resources. And in the last three years, from I think at the time that we actually closed the deal with a hundred thousand members. And we grew to close to 1.4 million in three years, uh, while the target was only 600,000. And we added probably an additional, of, probably doubled our customer base as well at the same time and reached like a number one position within a category in the world. So this would have never been possible if Adnet didn't give us that space, that operating space and allowed us to work. And it doesn't mean that we didn't work with them. We work with them extremely closely. We have to report to them on a monthly basis, uh, all the way up to the CEO. But but they gave us operating space and they trusted us that we are going to do 
what they need us to do. And it has, I mean, that kind of growth, we could have never done this on our own. Without without Avnet, we could have never done this. So Avnet has been not just uh, an owner, they've been a partner in the growth and, and nurturing of uh, of Hackster. So so that's our relationship. Uh, we are, you know, one of the biggest, they own now one of the biggest uh, developer ecosystems in the world as a result. Okay, final question. Um, pack out your crystal ball and tell me, where would you like to be in, say, one year's time? I'd like to be in Bali, first of all, uh, in one year's time. But otherwise, uh, <laughs> that would be nice. But otherwise, I, I think that we're looking, we're exploring even more ways to integrate uh, Hackster into Avnet and help startups integrate into Avnet even more. And I'll explain, we just launched a product called Hackster Launch. And what we're doing is we're helping companies crowdsource technologies on Hackster so they can launch the product a component, for example, on Hackster, but also buy all the bill materials, the components from Avnet. And when the product has been launched on Hackster and sold, and now it has been kind of got, gotten out of beta, Avnet can then sell it on their cart lines and on their website. So creating an ecosystem whereby we empower people from the community to create products, source the components, launch them on Hackster. And if the signal says strong, people love what you do, we want more of it. We then tell them now you can actually work with Avnet or Farnell. It's uh, another Avnet brand, um, and then and then they get to grow even more. So creating a very tight, closed ecosystem that benefits everyone—the users, the creators, and our mothership—that's really what we want to do, and that's where we're heading. Excellent. Thank you, Adam Benzian, for joining us here on We Talk IoT. We'll get back to you. Great. Thank you for having me. We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. If you need an industrial IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. Small satellites have dramatically changed the future of humans in space. The big money is now on business and space exploration. I'm joined now by Gordon Feller, who wrote an article for our magazine in which he said that, I quote, like the Industrial Revolution, when new manufacturing processes marked a historic turning point, low Earth orbit satellites, or LEOs, are poised to transform our relationship with outer space. Could you please elaborate? Well, you're dealing now today, 2020, with a world that wants to know in real time, what is the condition in my neighborhood and in my city and in my country with not just a particular pandemic, but all of the other conditions around me? 
the demand by people and organizations, whether it's businesses or governments or schools or hospitals for real-time information is seemingly boundless. And the challenge, of course, is meeting that demand uh, with a reasonable budget um, and having enough capacity that as a seven and a half billion people on the planet about to become 10 billion people want more, whether it's more connectivity or more information or more insight from that information or more entertainment or more communications, that we have the physical systems in place to be able to deliver that connectivity, that insight, that entertainment, that work, et cetera. So there's no way to do that with a very, very high cost old style satellite in geostationary orbit. And we have to have them in low earth orbit where they're closer to us here on the surface of the earth. They're easier to service um, and they're cheaper because they're smaller. So that's essentially the Leo revolution that makes possible all sorts of other things that we want to be doing every day of our lives. Could you please explain to our listeners the difference between geosynchronous and low earth orbits? So back in the 1940s, the science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001 A Space Odyssey, imagined these types of geo-satellites in Earth orbit, able to deliver services back to Earth. The first one was launched in 1963, and the geo-satellites sit up in a slot at 35,786 kilometers from the surface, which for those of us in the U.S. is 22,236 miles. So that's a long way from the surface of the Earth. The difference with the low Earth is, of course, that the satellites are more accessible to servicing because they're closer. They sit in an orbital track somewhere between 2,000 kilometers high, that's 1,200 miles, or six, 160 kilometers high, which is 90 miles. So that means there's less energy required to place the satellite into the slot, which is, of course, an expensive business of putting satellites into orbit. They can see the surface of the Earth more clearly because they're closer. They have one Earth revolution every 90 minutes, so they can look at the Earth's surface quickly to see what's changed within that 90 minutes. And they have the you know advantage of being able to see something enough times in an average day that we can end the tendency by scientists and engineers and government executives and business executives to do a lot of guessing so guessing has been you know our best friend i guess you could say for a long time we extrapolate from a little bit of information and then we apply it to the whole universe. And that is a nice thing to do, but it tends to result in mistakes. So if you have a satellite that's following uh, the condition in a particular spot, let's say in an oil field that's burning, or in a gas, um, well, let's say an oil tanker that's leaking, or in any other kind of accident that you want to track, um, you can end the guesswork about its current condition by being back on a constant basis to see what is changed. So in a geo-satellite, uh, you have to point the Earth-based terrestrial satellite antenna 
to a single permanent spot where the satellite is located. And thus we have weather satellites and lots of them to look down. And we have navigation GPS satellites, again, to look down. Um, but with LEO satellites, you don't have to have this. You don't have to have that constant tracking movement of the base of the Earth-based station. So uh, the disadvantage, however, is you need a network of LEO satellites. They're cheap. Some of them are so small, they're called nanosatellites. Um, and the satellites are, you know, unfortunately, having to deal in an area of space which is filled with debris, with garbage. So there are some disadvantages to being a LEO satellite. One of the other disadvantages that we'll come back to probably is that because the atmosphere in that zone has a lot of molecules compared to up farther, uh, deeper into space, it creates a drag um, on the satellite, which results in orbital decay that you don't get with the geosatellites. So that means the LEO satellites need to be constantly rebooted to overcome the drag and to prevent them from spiraling into the lower atmosphere and burning up. So there you have a bit of a picture of what's different LEO versus GEO. I understand that geosatellites can live for about 15 years. Um, LEO satellites, obviously not. Will extremely small commercial satellites, each with short life cycles that are reconstituted on a monthly or say a quarterly cycle, invigorate the commercial satellite industry? Yes, and that's for everybody in that industry, right? So it's those who make the satellites, those who make the components and the systems and the software and the hardware, but it's also invigorating the launch services companies and it's invigorating those who are ultimately the customers because. It used to be that you only got one geosatellite every so often for the commercial domain. Usually the available payload options, the slots on a rocket, were prim pri the primary spots went to military and intelligence agencies and then to critical government ministries like weather or navigation, departments of transportation, for instance. So now you have all of these available low-cost launches, low-cost satellites that are making affordable options available to all sorts of companies who never thought that they could use this type of data and are suddenly massive consumers of this type of data. I'll give you one example. A investor decided that to make a killing in the oil industry particularly not to be an oil producer, but to bet on the price of oil correctly, they wanted to know how much oil was out there, out of the ground, and in storage tanks. And they looked at what governments said, particularly the government of China, about how much oil they were storing and their companies were storing. And they thought, hmm, maybe there's a way to verify this. So they hired a satellite company to take pictures over time of all of the China terrestrial-based oil tank farms and to look at each tank. And when the sun was directed in a certain way during a certain time of day, they could see uh, from the shadow how much of the tank was filled up to the brim. Uh, and they therefore were able to count accurately how much oil the Chinese were storing on land as opposed to in ships. And it was wildly different from what the Chinese government said. 
And the result was this investment company was able to bet um, in a very profitable way on the price of oil because the Chinese were not letting it on that they had actually stored a lot more oil on land than they were letting the world know. So here you have an investment company that never could have imagined the possibility of getting access to that kind of data and directing certain types of photographs to be taken and then analyzed with particular AI and machine learning software that's used by the satellite company. So a little example where somebody made a large profit off of accurate information that reduced our dependence on government-provided data sets. Now, talking about making a killing, uh, Elon Musk and his company SpaceX uh, are planning to launch 12,000 tiny satellites for its Starlink project, which will create a uh, super-fast terrestrial internet. Um, he is not doing this just for fun, is he? No, I think he's very focused on making a killing, a financial killing. Uh, but also, you know, his his argument is that the cost of connectivity for rural communities and for others who believe that their service provider, terrestrial, is not doing a very good job with wireless or wired connectivity at the price point they're currently paying, he believes there's a huge pent-up demand for a better service delivered more efficiently from space than on the ground. And, um, you know, he has some naysayers, not just the astronomers, who worry about the light that's reflected off of those Starlink uh, satellites that will interfere with our ability as normal humans to look into outer space and see what, what the stars provide us. But he's, you know, obviously getting criticism from some who think that it's a pipe dream uh, and that he's despite his success with Tesla and despite his success so far with SpaceX, that he's not going to be able to pull this off. And those naysayers have recently had a little bit of a confirmation of their naysaying because on March 27, one of the competitors to Starlink system, OneWeb, filed for bankruptcy and laid off uh, most of its staff because it failed to secure new funding from investors, including its biggest backer, SoftBank. So you can argue that one reason they had a hard time getting new funding is uh, SoftBank uh, is in steep decline. And uh, Massa has not had a lot of success of late, despite a 20-year track record of great success. Um, some people have said, you know, don't bet against Massa and don't get bet against Elon because lots of people have lost their shirts doing that. But the economic impact of the pandemic was that uh, OneWeb found that even though they were in talks with investors who were enthusiastic two months ago, uh, as of a month ago, that declined, that interest level declined to zero. So it's hard to know how Starlink will do, but so far, you know, uh, the, the service offering is not widely available and the test users have not been saying how well it's performing. Well, it seems like the effects of COVID-19 are reaching even into outer space. We'll see where that heads. Thank you very much, Gordon, for sharing your insights with us. And um, please join us when we do our next podcast. And now, one more thing. OnScale, a specialist in cloud engineering simulation, has announced Project Breathe Easy aimed at creating digital twins of the lungs of COVID-19 patients. 
The goal is to optimize the use of limited ventilators and respiratory equipment and improve patient outcomes. OnScale is currently testing the solution with medical experts and is actively seeking additional partners and advisors. COVID-19 patients often die from acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, and with only a limited number of ventilators available in the U.S. and other countries, maximizing the per-patient utility of ventilators will be of vital importance. Even a 10% improvement may save thousands of lives. OnScale has formed a partnership with Lexma, a leading provider of advanced fluid flow and biomechanical simulation technology to create patient-specific digital twins that may accurately predict oxygen and blood flow in a patient's lungs. This, they hope, will help doctors make critical decisions about ventilator and intubation requirements for COVID-19 patients. That was We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.